Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. In these extraordinary times, we're coming to you from our various homes as we all shelter in place. This season on SageCast, we're talking to Pomona faculty and alumni about the personal, professional, and intellectual journeys that have brought them to where they are today. This episode was recorded in the studios of KSPC prior to the campus shutdown due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Today, we're delighted to talk to award-winning journalist and returning sage hen, Anjali Kamat, class of 2000. Welcome, Anjali. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, so since Pomona, you've gone on to build a really interesting career in investigative journalism. Um, let's, let's start with what you're doing now. Where are, what are you doing now? What do you, what do you, you know, where are you currently? So I live in New York, um, and I've spent the past year and a half at uh, New York Public Radio, WNYC, um, which has been fantastic. And I've been an investigative reporter there focusing on, um, Wall Street. So kind of looking into how Wall Street affects the lives of daily people. So kind of looking at consumer finance, looking at housing, real estate, why is New York so unaffordable? <laughs> Questions like that. Mm -hmm. And um, that's a question we ask about California too. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your day-to-day. -day. So you, you say you're uh, um, in, in New York examining the very important topic that affect a lot of people, yeah. a huge amount of people. Tell us a little bit about how do you go about your day-to-day. -day. Um, so, you know, as an investigative reporter, um, I, you know, my beat sort of in the past couple years has sort of accidentally become real estate and finance mm -hmm. and business and how it affects regular mm -hmm. people. Um, and I kind of fell into that because I... Um, you know, after the election of uh, Trump in 2016, um, I was really struck by the fact that one of his first foreign visitors were Indian real estate developers. <laughs> and I was so surprised by that that I started digging into mm -hmm. um, uh, the Trump Organization's business deals in India and realized that the largest foreign portfolio of the Trump Organization is actually in India. Mm. Um, so I spent a year and a half um, with the support of uh, Type Investigations, which used to be called the Investigative Fund, um, kind of digging into this and just got really interested in money and real estate mm -hmm. and the way it flows and questions of money laundering and who's buying an apartment and why is it so difficult to know who buys an apartment and how mm -hmm. people hide their money in luxury real estate and, you know, doing this in a transnational scale. So I got really interested in that. And then digging into Trump's own history as a real estate developer in New York City, got really interested in um, understanding the really complex sort of tax codes and zoning that governs New York City housing. And, you know, if you had asked me about this five or six years ago, I probably would have been kind of bored, been like, no, I do international reporting or I, you know, I look at race and, you know, the criminal justice system or Very social movements. Work. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I've come to realize this stuff is actually what lays the groundwork for a lot that's really fascinating. You know, yeah. even if we look ahead to, you know, the Bloomberg campaign, you know, a lot of my reporting and research is kind of somehow ended up being like, wow, the Bloomberg years, the years of, you know, when Mike Bloomberg was mayor of New York City, which was for three terms, um, you know, resulted in massive displacements and making New York City a place that attracted a lot of capital and real estate investment. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, a large part of why there's a large homeless population in New York mm -hmm. and why so many families have gotten displaced, mostly yeah. working class black and brown families. So, you know, these are the questions that I'm interested in. So that kind of shapes my day to day life, which, um, you know, when I've been at WNYC, it involves going into an office um, <laughs> every day and working with my colleagues and I'm part of the investigative team. Um, but I'll shortly be leaving them and kind of doing my own thing for a while. And, um, you know, a lot of what I do is in partnership with mm -hmm. other journalists, with journalistic organizations um, and talking to people. Um, so with housing, it's talking to a lot of housing lawyers, talking to people who are in housing court, mm -hmm. talking to um, advocates, mm -hmm. talking to real estate developers, talking to urban planners, trying to get a sense of what's happening and who's getting affected um, and, and why is it happening, really, you know, and what does this tell us? What's the story it tells us, right? Because mm -hmm. I think one of the reasons I got into journalism is, you know, I love stories yeah. <laughs> and everybody has a story. Every country has its mythology. Every political campaign has a narrative it wants you to believe in. And, you know, how do we as storytellers, as journalists, you know, whether it's fiction writers or as people who traffic in facts, right? What are the stories that we're hearing and how can we make sense of the world and put together a story that, you know, might not be the story you're hearing? <laughs> and how can we make it as inclusive as possible? Mm -hmm. And, you know, something that just makes you sit up and think, <laughs> be like, oh, is this really what's happening? I, I didn't understand that. You know, how do you connect all those dots? And I think mm -hmm. for me, investigative reporting kind of really goes back to my training as a history major in Pomona. Mm -hmm. um, you know, how do I sit and go through documents? <laughs> right. How do I find these documents? What are the archives? And how, do you how do you analyze them? How do you interpret what you're seeing? How do you Put it together into something that makes sense. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, these are questions that, you know, when I was doing breaking news or when I was reporting from, um, you know, conflict zones, it wasn't so much of a question. Um, right. But now that I'm doing more investigative work, it's it's everything. It's like, you know, what is data? How do we get data sets or get documents? How do we question the source, mm -hmm. question its veracity, um, really try and understand what piece of the story is it telling us? And is it a useful piece? Yeah. <laughs> you know? You mentioned that you've been uh, working on this for you worked on this for like a year and a half, yeah. uh, sort of in the era of the 24-hour news cycle. That seems like a luxurious amount of time to spend working on a story. How do you uh, how do you approach that kind of in-depth journalism and the demands for producing things along the way? Um, I was very lucky. Uh, I had another job um, <laughs> because there's not a whole lot of money in journalism and you can't really support yourself doing long form investigative work. Um, mm -hmm. But I was lucky for two reasons. One, I had a teaching job at Brooklyn College. Mm -hmm. I was a visiting professor there for a year, which was fantastic. Um, so I had some time. Um, and then I also got um, support from Type Investigations, which, mm -hmm. you know, supports mm -hmm. independent freelance reporters. Mm -hmm. So Combined, I had a little bit of time and, you know, just enough money to do the reporting and the research. And I wasn't working for a daily news organization at the time, so I didn't have the pressure mm -hmm. of needing to publish. Yeah. And at WNYC, I was brought in on a grant for investigative reporting. So, mm -hmm. I mean, in the Trump era, I think across the country, news organizations and funders are realizing that investigative <laughs> reporting is actually really important <laughs> and not something that should be just done away with. 
<laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Know, like, I mean, the piece I did um, ended up as two episodes of the Trump Inc. podcast from WNYC and ProPublica, mm-hmm. which, if I'm not mistaken, is one of the first um, kind of audio investigations, right? Mm-hmm. How do you investigate, like have an open investigation into a current administration <laughs> that people can listen to mm-hmm. and not yeah. just read? Because, again, we're also talking about this time of social media and people's very limited um, ability to focus for long periods of time. And your attention is constantly, you know, taken away, whether it's, Mm -hmm. you know, by the news cycle or Twitter, and you want something that's, you know, just fits into a tweet. So, you know, people have found that people are actually more willing to spend time listening to something than maybe reading something over a really long period of time. So, you know, my investigation was a 12,500 word piece. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how many people read that. But a lot of people (laughs) did listen to the two 25 minute Mm -hmm. podcasts, you know. Yeah. How have you seen that evolution? Because you're right, people's attention has you know significantly decreased, and and in your investigative work, what was was visual more important before? Com- talk to us a little bit about how you know visuals versus audio versus yeah. reading a long, long, long article. How has that evolved? How have you seen that change? You know, I spent 10 years in television. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a Democracy Now!, I was a producer, then a co-host with Amy Goodman, and a correspondent covering mm-hmm. um, the Arab uprisings. Um, and uh, that was both TV and radio, mm-hmm. um, and mostly I think people watch it online. Um, and that was wonderful. Um, and, you know, had a really, has a huge audience um, and a very dedicated audience, people mm-hmm. who really like democracy now and are sort of committed to it, which is great. And then I worked at Al Jazeera uh, making documentaries, um, mm-hmm. and some of them were investigative documentaries. Um, and that was fantastic because, you know, there is something really gripping about a visual narrative, right? And especially mm-hmm. uh, when you're kind of in a place where there's dramatic changes happening mm-hmm. and you're able to capture that on camera and bring that to people. I mean, everybody wants to see it, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's, you know, uh, a, a short little, you know, with the transformation of technology and how cheap it's gotten to make high quality videos. But even before that, just with cell phones having cameras and mm-hmm. everybody being able to, you know, take a video to a protest or record an act of police brutality or record, you know, sort of bear witness to something happening and have their own video of it and be able to share it immediately. Mm -hmm. The landscape of video and how quickly it can be shared has changed. So what we focused on when I was at Fault Lines, which is the um, kind of flagship current affairs documentary program at Al Jazeera, was how do we make really excellent quality video? Um, How do we put our investment into that? But also really gripping stories Mm -hmm. where that involves people actually being on the scene of something happening, right? Um, So that was, you know, a real challenge, but also I learned so much because it was making 25-minute documentaries on a range of topics, Mm -hmm. you know, from what was going on in Sinai to um, uh, garment factories, uh, disasters in garment factories in Bangladesh, um, and kind of tracing the supply chain back up to Gap or Walmart, um, to trafficking of uh, labor on U.S. military bases in Afghanistan, Mm -hmm. to women's prisons in California, um, to what was happening in Ferguson a few years ago. Um, So we were able to, you know, make all these films, and Faultline still continues, and, you know, I was there for five years and it was a great run. Um, I think I sort of transitioned away from video and film because one of the things I was missing was as a reporter, how do I have um, 
e- an even smaller footprint in interacting with people because mm. the more complex the stories were getting, the harder it was to show up with a camera. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Um, so when I'm digging into something like corruption in real estate, right? Yeah. Or corruption in the presidency. It's a yeah. little bit hard for to expect anyone to be really willing to talk sure. on camera. Sure. Um, sure. And it's a lot easier to just go in as a print reporter, mm-hmm. um, you know, just put like a, you know, like even just your cell phone on the table to record. So it's not even super high quality audio at the time, right? But it's just more mm-hmm. like, let me understand the story. Mm-hmm. I know you're at a lot of risk at speaking out. And I mean, of course, people who make films and TV do this all the time. And we've used, you know, when it was justified, used hidden cameras or, you know, spoken to whistleblowers who spoke at great personal cost and said, OK, we won't show your face. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to mm-hmm. just show your hands or something and your silhouette so nobody will recognize you. So we've done that. But it just as as the stories got more complex, it's also, you know, it's like some stories are good for TV and some stories are just kind of hard to show on TV because what are you seeing, right? Mm-hmm. The stories that are good for television and video are often something's happening, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? right. You, it has to be gripping to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, and so mm-hmm. I think I started just getting more and more interested in um, complex stories like real estate, finance, housing, which which weren't necessarily a natural fit for television. And um, I think the challenge for me was like, how do I make it interesting for print or audio. (laughs) Um, And, you know, working with the people I've worked with at WNYC has been really great to like really think about how do we tell the story in a way that people will care about it um, and people will understand it. And hopefully people will be a little upset about it. (laughs) Yeah. The way you, the way you describe the differences between the media is interesting yeah. to me. Uh, you've you've done both print. And, mm-hmm. uh, do you have a preference? Do you do you, do you like working in one <laughs> one field of the media more Choose than your another? Child, <laughs> I know it's a hard question. Um, I really like all three media. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I I've never worked in a newspaper. Mm-hmm. In a traditional newspaper, mm-hmm. I mean, all the print pieces I've done have been magazine pieces or I've yeah. written for newspapers, but as a freelancer. So mm-hmm. I don't have that um, attachment to a, a newspaper sort newsroom. A daily, yeah. yeah, but I've done that in television and radio. I've right. worked in daily newsrooms, um, which which is, you know, there's a lot of adrenaline. It's exciting. <laughs> there's a lot going on. Um, it's much better when you're younger. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I had a friend. You can handle all the adrenaline. Right. I had a friend who left um, TV for a while and got a master's in urban planning. And she, I remember she emailed me and she was like, hey, I see there's some jobs at Al Jazeera. I was at this event the other day and I saw these people filming and I saw the pile of cables and I had this rush of nostalgia. <laughs> and I just want to get back into TV. I can't I miss mm-hmm. it. And so I I think it's a little bit like that, you know, yeah. trying to choose. For me, I think about it more as a type of story because mm-hmm. some stories are just really good fits. And you, I mean, you can make any story into video or print or TV It's or radio. It's just a question of, is it best suited? Right. Right. And is it, is there, there's sometimes, you know, certain nuances and complexities that are harder to translate on TV mm-hmm. and some yeah. stories that, you know, the magic is just lost in print. Like you have to see it because you right. just see the way the light falls on this person's face. Yeah. <laughs> right. And mm-hmm. that, that's what stays with you or that expression yeah. in somebody's eyes. Well, that's know? the, yeah. And the immediacy of, of video is, exactly. is the power of it. Right. Exactly. I mean, it's, 
it, the humanity of it, the just the immediacy of, of experiencing something yeah. rather than just reading about it. Exactly. And I think, you know, all of them have a certain kind of magic and, you know, obviously writing well in words are central to all of them. Um, mm -hmm. And I think I was surprised when I first got into documentary, like how important a good script was. It's yeah. not just having, you know, excellent video and a great mm -hmm. editor. You really need mm -hmm. to, you know, use words minimally, but know how to use them. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier that you wouldn't have imagined covering real estate or housing <laughs> or Wall Street. Um, how, so obviously the 2016 election kind of um, sent you to the to a different mm -hmm. uh, type of areas that you probably didn't think of covering before. Um, how is how is reporting change in this climate? You know, we, we, we face a, a different political climate within the last, you know, um, let's say four years. Um, how has that affected the way that you do your reporting or what do you find the most challenging about doing reporting in, in this type of climate? I mean, I think many things. I think having um, done a lot of international reporting, it's been very interesting to see um, American reporters who just do domestic reporting kind of change the way mm. they um, kind of the way they interact with government sources and authority um, and deal with them with much more skepticism the way, you know, we're used to doing overseas. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So I think the change in power with uh, a president who makes, you know, repeated and open uh, comments criticizing the media, um, leading to threats against the media, constantly discrediting the media, have led to a much more adversarial relationship with the press, which I think is good mm -hmm. on the part of on our part mm -hmm. for us to maintain an adversarial relationship with power because that's our job right. is to hold power accountable. Mm -hmm. So I think in that sense, um, I'm sort of, you know, heartened by that. Like, I think we're all now seeing <laughs> a government the way we should be with a healthy degree mm -hmm. of skepticism mm -hmm. and not believing every press release, not simply regurgitating it, right? Which we used to see a lot when it came to foreign policy, sure. right? Yeah. Where like not really critically engaging with like a civilian death toll, right? Like, let's question this. It's, this is coming with a certain interest in mind. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also, of course, made things much harder, um, I think for all of us in terms of just getting basic information. Um, and I think with a lot of agencies, you know, the kind of work I do is would be difficult under any administration because a lot of it is looking at private companies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's no FOIA for private companies, right? <laughs> um, and it's a total yeah. black box. And we live in a world where private companies have more and more control over our lives. Um, and it's harder and harder to get disclosure about mm -hmm. what exactly is going on. And it relies entirely on, you know, human intelligence and whistleblowers on leaks, um, which, you know, people have to pay a greater and greater price to do. And people are, mm -hmm. you know, nervous about doing it. And that was, you know, with the case of the government, like, yes, you can FOIA things, but it's always been known that, you know, some agencies are more open to FOIAs. There's always exceptions when it comes to Freedom of Information Act, um, especially when it comes to questions of national security or intelligence. It's very, very hard, if not impossible, to get information without a leak. And I think what's been different under this administration is um, the sense that a lot of agencies, um, you know, are being stacked with loyalists. So it's getting harder to find sources who would be willing to talk to you, mm -hmm. which might have been the case in previous administrations where someone would be like, yeah, you know, here's what's going on. There's this many detentions or, this, you know, whatever yeah. it is. Um, and I think... 
the, the biggest challenge I see for a lot of reporters, including myself, is how do you find trustworthy sources um, mm -hmm. when so many people in different, I mean, leave aside the fact that multiple agencies are left understaffed, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, we're mm -hmm. in, you know, almost the end of the first administration and there's still severely understaffed. So mm -hmm. there's that piece of it. But then, you know, when everyone is just very scared to speak up, and we saw this with the <laughs> Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, right? Like, When we've seen in the last few days why people are, are scared to speak up. Exactly. Exactly. With what's happening with the Justice Department. Yeah. yeah. I just I just um, did something I shouldn't have done, I think, which right. is to, to peg Fast this to a certain dated. time. I know. I just thought about it. that. Yeah. So we may end up cutting that well, line. Yeah. We can but, say, you know, we're yeah. filming. Well, we'll, cause we'll, we'll see. Because we'll, we can say we'll that see. she's here for the fake news. Uh, yeah. So that build on okay. the string. So that's fine. <laughs> um, is that going on here? <laughs> it's going to be done. So... Um, Let's talk about some of the other things you've covered. Uh, I mean, you you reported on the Arab uprisings in Egypt and Libya. Yeah. Can you talk to us about what that was like? That that was such a. Um, I mean, we look back on it now, and it feels different than at the time. But what was it like at the time? Uh, it was exhilarating. <laughs> I mean, it was definitely the most exciting time of my life. I mean, it felt like I was in the middle of history being made. Mm -hmm. It was. Uh, I remember having a conversation with my dad and he was so happy that I was there and he was like, you're in the middle of history. And I was like, yeah, it's this, it's, it's sort of a, you know, a moment you don't think about, you know, I think growing up, um, I certainly didn't think about being in the middle of a revolution, right. Or a popular uprising. It felt, that's mm -hmm. felt like something of a different era. Mm -hmm. It yeah. didn't. Things you read about in history books. Exactly. It didn't feel like something that was possible in our cynical generation. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, it was very, very exciting. Um, I, I think, um, partly because I spent time, um, in the Middle East, um, and I studied Arabic, and I was very familiar with Egypt and had lived there before I studied mm -hmm. Arabic in Egypt, and I'd worked there, and I had a lot of friends there. So, you know, I ended up, I was on, I was supposed to go to Egypt, I had a ticket to Cairo, um, I'd taken a year off of democracy now. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to spend some time with my dad. Um, and I was dating someone in Egypt. So I was like, I'm going to go spend some time with this person in Egypt. And I had a ticket for January 25th, 2011, um, which I'd bought in October. And then um, a couple days before my dad had a fall. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to stay a bit longer in India with my dad. Um, and I remember uh, my partner at the time was like, you know, there's like stuff happening, you know, in Tunisia, the president just got deposed. I think there's going to be some protests in Egypt, but you know, Egypt, it's, they're just going to crack down on it. It's probably going to be over in a couple of days, <laughs> but you shouldn't delay by too long because you don't want to miss this. It could be interesting. Mm -hmm. yeah. I was like, yeah, yeah, but I got to be with my dad. And then um, the 25th happened and I was watching these protests, the 26th, the 27th, they kept going. And I was like, I cannot believe I'm not there. This is insane. I had a ticket to get there. Um, and then I think my dad got so tired of me complaining because <laughs> all we were doing was watching BBC and CNN and Al Jazeera and... Um, um, you know, and I was so upset that our internet connection wasn't very good and I couldn't, you know, watch 
people's live reports. Well, from... your mind was in Egypt, my... so, why, so you might as well be, they have the rest of you there, right? That's exactly what my dad said. He said, only your body is here. Please leave. <laughs> I'll be fine. Bye. <laughs> Just go. So I got there a few days later and, um, you know, but when I got there, I was uh, the only foreigner on the flight. I was the only foreign woman, certainly. Um, it was mostly, uh, you know, working class Egyptian men who were coming back from sort of low paid jobs in the Middle East, in the Gulf, in the Persian Gulf, because um, I came from East to mm. Egypt. Um, and, uh, you know, I remember I had talked to my partner at the time and he was like, well, the protests are ongoing. They're about to cut off the phone lines. So make your way to this address. You know, Egypt, you know, Arabic, figure it out. I can't come to the airport. It's too crazy. I was like, okay, fine. I mean, which was totally fine for me. And then I get there and it's this abandoned airport. And there is, you know, tires burning, not a single cab. You know, it was quite something. <laughs> Sounds like a scene from a movie. It mm -hmm. felt like it. And, you know, I kind of walked for a bit. It was getting dark. And I was like, am I being silly? Uh, <laughs> and then I finally found some cab driver who I was like, look, you got to take me. Like, mm -hmm. you can't leave me here alone. <laughs> you know, kind of appealed to his sense of decency. Humanity. And I was like, really, are you just going to leave me here alone? Like, just take me somewhere. Just get me out of here. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I kind of finally managed to get in. And then we went to Tahrir Square. And I mean, it just felt like magical. You know, there were yeah. thousands and thousands of people. It was just walking around, banners saying, you know, the people demand the fall of the regime. Um, it was like part carnivalesque. There were, you know, people selling food and dancing and singing and people setting up camp. And it just seemed like magical. And then, you know, a few days later, the counterattack started and mm -hmm. you started to see people attacking the square and supporters of Mubarak. And then you had this whole propaganda war where, you know, the state television was just showing images of the Nile flowing peacefully. <laughs> refusing to show pictures of the oh protests. <laughs> you know, so it was also kind of early lessons in how yeah. propaganda works mm -hmm. and, and how it doesn't work, right? right. It fails miserably. Mm -hmm. But it was, you know, the 18 days in the square that it took for Mubarak to be brought down um, was, a, you know, I feel very grateful that I was there for a large part of mm -hmm. it and, you know, see how people can take care of each other. Mm -hmm. Like what a magical experience it is to kind of, be a part of a movement with people in completely different from completely different parts of society who you wouldn't normally interact with mm -hmm. because of your class background or your gender or religion or yeah. ideological beliefs. Um, and it was, you know, a really magical thing, I think, for everyone, um, where you just had this vision of um, a different possibility, a different world. Um, and then when Mubarak finally stepped down on February 11th, um, you know, it just felt like there was just disbelief and, hmm. and joy. Mm -hmm. um, and then after that, you know, in many ways, it was a series of disappointments yeah, that yeah. got more and more and more grave. And, yeah. you know, how do you process that uh, having been there and having having felt what you yeah. felt? I think that's a question that, you know, I'm still trying to figure out because, um, you know, as I watch protests in other places and I see people from other countries get really excited, you know, um, especially what's happening in India now with a lot of the protests that I've been watching from afar and, you know, sort of jealously wishing I was there to kind of see this because I never expected something like this mm -hmm. in India. But mm -hmm. again, the lesson I think is like, we can't get stuck believing that, you know, this is the only way things will go. 
Mm-hmm. There's always a possibility of some sort of change, right? And I think yeah. a large part of our role as journalists is also not to just accept the status quo, but to, you know, be able to imagine different possibilities mm-hmm. and be ready and willing for that. Mm-hmm. And then, but it's also hard, I think, sort of given what I've seen and what I've seen my friends go through and so many friends who were arrested, um, people who were injured by um rubber bullets, who lost their eyesight, people who died, uh, people who are still in prison, um, people who, uh, you know, have had serious mental health issues because of the trauma of what they Mm -hmm. went through. Um, And and the way it ended, you know, with uh, with a military coup and a massacre, um, it's uh, it's 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 difficult to kind of I I I can't say it's not worth it. Right. And I and I right. talk to friends from Syria or Yemen or, you know, many other parts of the world. It's like, was it not worth it? Do you just wish you could go back to the way it was? Right. And, you know, very few people will say, yes, I wish we could just go back because, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes maybe. But um, but it's it's a hard thing to say. It's like, well, we're in this hard place mm-hmm. and we don't know how long this hard place is going to last. But, you but know. they've had a taste Right. Uh, I mean, that that makes a difference. Yeah. Having a taste of 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 freedom, of you know, of of um, democracy. Yeah, it, I that mean, doesn't go away. I think so. I mean, I remember having dinner with um, the Egyptian uh, Le- uh, Libyan novelist Hisham Matar um, a few months after the uprisings, and um, his father had uh, was disappeared by Gaddafi's regime in Libya. Um, a few decades before, and he'd never seen him. And the Libyan uprising was also, you know, happening. And he was talking to me and some of my friends because we had gone back, we had gone into Libya and he hadn't Mm -hmm. been able to go back yet. And he was kind of contemplating a visit, but it was Mm -hmm. also very wrapped up in his own Mm -hmm. pain. Um, And I remember, you know, we were all complaining like, oh, it's so, things are so bad. Nothing's moving. Like, you know, uh, all the demands are being met. Like, this is just so depressing. And he was like, you know, don't despair. You know, everyone who was there had a window into a different possibility. And that's going to mm-hmm. stay with them. And that's life changing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, even if it doesn't change right away, there's mm-hmm. something to that, that yeah. glimpse into something, you know, yeah. that's that's so important. And I think but I think it's hard to hold on to that when you're living under it. You know, my friends and former colleagues in Egypt, um, you know, are trying <laughs> and yeah. some of them run an independent newspaper. But you know, there's a constant crackdown. Um, So it's very difficult. Um, And I I don't know. I mean, I I think what I've learned from them is we can't sink into apathy or despair. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But maybe we just have to wait a little. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. how do we keep keep going and keep doing our work without assuming it's all for naught, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I think about this in our context here too, right? When I talk to people who are very concerned about the Trump administration and concerned about um, Trump winning again, mm-hmm. which is a big possibility. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, what do we do? Is that just going to freeze everyone? Is, you know, and yeah. I hear people saying, oh, I'm just going to move or I, I can't do this again. I can't do another, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> another administration. Mm-hmm. I don't even want to wait to see what's going to happen. And it's, you know, yeah. what do we do during dark times? Right? And what do you mm-hmm. say to them? 
I mean, I think I just say what I say to myself, which is we have to keep going, mm-hmm. you know, like there will be singing even in dark times, yeah. right? We have to keep, you know, even if you're living in the middle of it, mm-hmm. um, I think all the lessons we've learned from people who've gone through this around the world and at different points of history is, you know, I understand the pressure and the desire to give up, but we can't, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. How do you balance um, in in the reporting that you do to remain objective? And because there are stories that are are really tough that you cover, not only nationally but internationally. How do you how do you kind of check yourself? Like, oh my goodness, because you said that you wanted you in a way why you gravitated toward uh, audio more on audio storytelling was because you didn't want to be kind of you wanted to, the story to tell itself. Yeah. Um, how how do you manage that? You know, I think a lot about what does it mean to be objective, mm-hmm. right? And the whole concept of objectivity. And I think there's um, an idea that, you know, journalism has to be unbiased and objective. Right. And I think one of the things I I always think about is like, what does that mean, right? What is the, um, what do we mean when we say, you know, an older generation of journalists was more objective, mm-hmm. a younger generation is less objective. Mm-hmm. At the same time, the journalism is becoming more diverse, mm-hmm. right? Um, and there's, I think, this implicit assumption that, you know, a certain way of looking at the world was objective when really it's just one way of looking at the world. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think I don't think there is such a thing as objectivity or being completely unbiased or sure. neutral. Right. I think everybody brings a perspective. And each perspective is different, mm-hmm. right? And your perspective, if you grew up in a particular part of the country or the world for the particular race, particular ethnicity, particular gender expression, particular sexuality, your view of the world is going to be based on a lot of those experiences mm-hmm. and what you went through. Um, and I think when we talk about diversifying newsrooms, right, this is what we're talking about. Yeah. How do we bring all of these perspectives in to better cover the reality of the world we're living in and of the mm-hmm. majority of the people? So that's that's sort of one way I think about it. But also just, you know, no matter what we bring in, how do we cover a story giving full hum- humanity to the people we're covering? whether or not we like them, right? (laughs) (laughs) And that, to me, is the question. Um, And constantly undercut by, sort of framed by this commitment to holding power to account, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not about being civil or nice or are you nice to this person? No, it's a question of, like, if someone has a lot of power and I have evidence that they've committed a lot of abuses or a lot of abuses have gone on under their watch, I have to ask them about it. It's not a question of objectivity or whether I like the person or dislike the person. It's just like, hey, here's what I have. What's what do you say about this? (laughs) You know, here are the stories of all the people who say that you've harmed them. What's your response? Right. And so how do we think about objectivity in that context? Right. Where you're holding power to account but also forcing yourself to kind of treat people the way you'd want to be treated. And if I did mm-hmm. something wrong, I would want to be treated that way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, it's just a question of like, yes, like see people as fully human, no matter where they're from, no mm-hmm. matter what your biases are. Maybe you've never met someone from a particular country or maybe you grew up with a particular, you know, bias about something. Check your biases, right? <laughs> yeah, the, I sometimes think though that the biggest change in journalism today isn't isn't the questions of objectivity it's questions of time 
Um, I read a piece um, by a, a journalist who, an older journalist who, he was an award-winning journalist who'd, who had covered Vietnam. And he was talking about how they would cover a story that, you know, they would hear something, he would go there, he would try to confirm it, he would try to get two or three confirmations. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it would take a week or two weeks. He would pursue it until he had, until he knew the story was real, and then he would report on it. And he said, of course, in a 24-hour news cycle, you can't do that because someone else is going to tell the story. Yeah. And that to me, how do you deal with the, with the, the problem of how you confirm a story versus the, the pressure to air because someone else is going to beat you to it if you don't? Is that, a, is that something you deal with? I'm very lucky because I don't work in breaking news anymore. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, yes, the 24-hour news cycle is now, like, even faster. I mean, it's yeah. it's just getting harder and harder you have to, to break into seconds now, confirm stories in a, you know, the easiest way is just to look online, right? Mm -hmm. And we were just discussing this at the fake news colloquium, which is, you know, what are the pitfalls of doing that? Mm -hmm. You know, how do you verify sources online? Yeah. You know, somebody might say something on Twitter. How do you not know it's a rumor? Mm -hmm. What is, you know, mm -hmm. how do you track down the real person and how you do you trust them? You know, it isn't a them? Russian troll. Yeah, right. I mean, it's... <laughs> I mean, it's extremely difficult to, to do this kind of work. And I think what's interesting is there are efforts in some newsrooms to kind of have... Um, a breaking news investigations team. Mm -hmm. So you're actually putting the skills of investigative reporters onto a breaking news team. Mm -hmm. So while kind of people are, you know, in that mad rush to get the story first, mm -hmm. there's also some people who are just really kind of going through public records, trying to understand like what's the story here and maybe mm -hmm. have a slightly longer timeline, like mm -hmm. maybe closer to like three or four days rather than mm -hmm. five to eight minutes, <laughs> right. right? Because it's extremely difficult in that kind yeah. of um, environment to just be like, you know, we're hearing this. I mean, short of just saying, this is what one person said. We have no idea if it's true or not, but we're just telling you because we're hearing it. And, and we you think hear that on the news. All the time. All the time. Yeah. I mean, now people yeah. are at least saying that, right? Yeah, that they're, right. they're putting that caveat around least, it. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a hard thing, and I don't envy yeah. them, and I don't want to be in that particular <laughs> kind of reporting. I mean, I'm lucky. I sort of have been doing, you know, deep, long-form stuff, or mm -hmm. even before that, um, at least it was a daily news show. It wasn't, right. um, you know, minute-to-minute -minute breaking news. Yeah. You mentioned that you're back on campus because mm -hmm. you were at a part of a colloquium on fake news uh, put on by uh, the college's uh, humanities studio. Um, what's your reaction? Have you been back to campus uh, since you graduated? What's your uh, what's what's been your impression since um, you're back on campus? It's great to be back. I mean, it's 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 funny, right? You spend such for such a formative time of your life here, you know, when you're 18 to 22, and mm -hmm. um, it's 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 always interesting. I've been back a couple times, mm -hmm. um, but it's now my what twentieth year um, since graduation, and so it's it's it is funny to kind of notice how it feels like to sort of recognize certain sites and mm -hmm. <laughs> certain buildings, and then also be completely lost in some <laughs> other parts of campus and be like, wait, what is that? Wasn't that where the we used to the computer lab? I mean, a concept that doesn't even exist, right? Um, we used to 
go and write our papers in a computer lab. <laughs> go, go print. There. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so it's been fun. I mean, I think the best part has been um, reconnecting with some of my old professors who are still here and, mm -hmm. you know, who were so formative in my life and setting me along different paths and just wonderful to see them again. Did you think, did you already have plans to go into journalism when you were a student? I did not. No, how, I was a history major. <laughs> and how, so what were your plans and how did those change? You know, I was a history major and I think I wanted to be an academic. Um, I think I assumed I would maybe go to grad school um, and get a PhD. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember uh, my professor, Sam Yamashita, um, the history department encouraged me to take some time off and do something completely different. Um, and a few others also suggested that. Um, and I think I thought about maybe teaching in a high school. Um, and then uh, I remember talking to one of my professors who did the Peace Corps mm -hmm. um, in West Africa. And he was like, you know, it is really great language training. Um, and he's like, here's a secret. You can leave whenever you want. You don't have to do the full two and a half years. <laughs> um, and, you know, some of my other professors were like, oh, don't go to the Peace Corps. It's like, you know, imperialist. <laughs> um, and I, I, I didn't really want to go to the Peace Corps. I was just, you know, trying to think about different things. And I think one thing I did want to do was go overseas. Um, even though I grew up in India, mm -hmm. I was like, well, if I'm gonna, I don't want to go back to India right away, because um, if I go back, then I won't come, I won't go anywhere else. Um, <laughs> I don't want to stay in the US right now. It's like, how can I go somewhere else? So I ended up going to the Peace Corps, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. even though my dad was, um, you know, very upset. He's like, everyone's going to think you're a CIA agent. Um, <laughs> Were you? <laughs> she can't tell you. She can't tell. <laughs> but it was really wonderful because, and, you know, I went to the meeting and I had studied Spanish here at Pomona and I sort of thought, okay, maybe I would love to improve my Spanish, maybe go somewhere in Central America or Latin America. And um, the, re the recruiter kind of looked at my um, list of classes and was like, oh, and, you know, completely random. She was like, oh, you took a class called Women in Islam um, with Zain Qasim. And she was like, well, do you want to go to the Middle East? I was like, sure. I've always wanted to learn Arabic. I never really thought about it. And she's like, great. And so I ended up in Jordan. Um, it was quite accidental, but it ended up being, you know, really formative to my life because I was in Jordan and started studying Arabic. Um, and I was there when the second intifada broke out in Palestine. Um, and I was kind of sitting in this village, just learning Arabic. And there was one house in the village with a satellite TV dish. Um, so that was where everybody would gather to watch, you know, what was happening because we knew there was something happening next door and you could kind of see something over the hills, but you weren't quite sure what it was. Um, so everyone would gather in this house and there was, Al Jazeera had just started, Al Jazeera mm -hmm. Arabic. Mm -hmm. So people were watching Al Jazeera, people were, you know, they would occasionally switch to BBC for me um, in English or <laughs> CNN or yeah. one of the Jordanian or Israeli English yeah. channels. Mm -hmm. um, and I just remember, you know, that was the first time I really critically sort of experienced what I had read about in college about kind of manufacturing consent or, you know, these ideas of media bias and how different countries have a different bias and how different channels create media narratives. And it was just watching it in real time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think that's when I just started getting really interested in the media and how it works, um, you know, watching how all these different channels covered the same incident of one young 12-year-old boy getting shot down. 
uh, by the Israeli military. And um, I just started reading more about it. And then there was a, um, a new journalism school that opened in my hometown in India um, that was modeled in Colombia. Uh, it was a one-year program. And, uh, you know, I was like, why not? I'll apply. And I applied and I got in and I, you know, kind of got into journalism that way. And never looked back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, we're going to wrap this up. Our thanks to Angel- Anjali Kamat. And to all who stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Until next time.